This is Auto Collabs. The reality is, this is why we're laughing, is because Paul was not recording just a second ago. So I'm taking the lead on this one. And when we think about incredible people uh, in our industry that just have uh, an immense amount of insight because of the interactions that they have with dealers every day, that's Alan Haig. And Alan Haig uh, spent a little time with us to tell us a lot about what happened in 2021 and what's happening in 2022 regarding uh, uh, M&A transactions in the dealership space. Um, Guys, uh, just an incredible interview and uh we hope you actually just enjoy the way we got to talk to alan Hank. alan thank you so much for uh spending some time with us today from your summer office really appreciate you giving us a, a few minutes to share all the insights of your travels and uh, what you're seeing out there in the industry well, I appreciate you uh, having me on, so to speak. It is still a really active time in the buy-sell market. We've had uh, a chance to compile the, the stats for the second quarter or the first half of 2022. And the n- total number of dealerships sold so far this year is up 3% from last year, which was by far a record year in the industry. And most of that increase is coming from private dealers buying private dealers. Last year, we had a huge number of transactions closed by the public companies. They spent over $9 billion on acquisitions last year. Normally, they're spending around $750 million, maybe a billion dollars in a good year. So they did some really large transactions last year. And I think they spent the first few months, six months of this year, digesting some of those. Uh, but they're coming back in the market as well. So Did we're you say $9 billion? He did. I heard a B. <laughs> Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I just have to stop you there because, you know, I I think a lot of times, you know, there's plenty of people that listen to the Auto Collapse podcast and, you know, from, you know, industry partners to dealers to some salespeople and account reps and everybody kind of in the ecosystem. And when we, and when we like glaze over like, oh, 750 million, sometimes a billion, but $9 billion in acquisitions from, large and smaller groups last year that's that's last year well nine billion was the amount just by the public companies wow that's the public companies so public companies bought 216 stores last year private dealers bought 491 so the amount spending by the the private dealers might have been even more you know we don't have any way to track the spending but it was a huge year you know and, and some of it was um, the public companies have all adapted a similar strategy now where they have this bricks and clicks strategy. You know, Lithia has explained it pretty well. They want to build out a ne- nationwide network of dealerships through acquisitions. And then they're, they're going to use their driveway app or website to penetrate into the rest of the market and take share from dealers that don't have the same capabilities that they have online. So uh, that's, uh, that's uh, Lithia's str- uh, strategy. If you listen to their press release, they refer to this as Lithia and Driveway, Lithia and Driveway. Yeah. Yep. yep. I, I have a hunch they'll rebrand the whole company Driveway at some point and have a national brand. So you think guess. they're going to call Drive? like your guess is that they're going to just, everything will be Driveway. There will no longer be two brands. It'll be the same brand Driveway trading as it is right now, but it'll be everything, franchise, used cars, all wrapped up. If they can get past the factories, that makes sense to me, Mm -hmm. right? There's CarMax. You can go to the stores where you go to CarMax, the website, you know, it'd be weird if you had, 
you know, the Lithia's bought all these stores. In the most cases, they've kept the original brands, yep. just like AutoNation did when they bought a lot of stores. They have one brand in the market. But about five years ago, AutoNation rebranded all the non-luxury stores, AutoNation. And I think yep. that's going to help with their digital strategy. Because then as a consumer, you're just seeing one brand in the market, AutoNation, 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 not, you know, Maroney Ford, Elway right. Ford, you know, those different sub-brands. But at any rate, this bricks and click strategy is something that I think all the public companies are adopting because they've all been more active, right? I mean, Lithia has been the most active. Asbury has been extremely active the last couple of years since David Holtz kind of took over that company. You've also had Sonic coming back into the market. They bought a large group. Group One bought a Prime uh, mm-hmm. last year. They're out buying stores. Um, Penske has been a little bit quiet and they've been focusing maybe on their used car strategy. Uh, so they are all really all doing this. And, and that's something that honestly we're recommending to private dealers is, is, uh, today everybody's selling every vehicle they can get at full price plus, right. But in five years, when the inventory comes back and you have to fight for customers, you know, today, you know, people are shopping on their phones and their computers, um, to buy most types of inventory or most types of items. And we know there's been an increase in digital retailing on the auto side as well. But I feel like in five years when there are plenty of units out there, those groups that have the capability to attract customer with, with a, 10 brands in the market or 20 brands in the market knew that they can sell and thousands of used cars available and customers can go and, and, and touch them physically. I think they're going to have an advantage over the person who has one or two stores and can't have the same uh, mind share of customers. You know, when you go search for Ford near me, it's going to be Lithia that pops up or Carvana that pops up, not the local guy if he just has one store. Mm-hmm. So we're encouraging folks to be active now on the M&A side to, to build out a larger group of stores. And our estimate is we have perhaps 10 of the major brands That'll cover about 75% of consumer demand. And you'll have thousands of vehicles, new and used, in the local market, available for customers to shop. You'll have a local brand. If you have 10 stores in a market, you should be able to attract lots of great talent because they'll know that, hey, if I join this Honda store over here, I'm a service advisor. The service manager may be here for 15 more years, but there's another uh, company in that group, another dealership in that group, where there may be an opportunity for me for advancement. So, so what, what you're saying is because right now I see a lot of groups where they don't have, where like they have a store in, uh, you know, let's just, let's just talk Tennessee. That's why they've got a store in Memphis. They got a store in Clarksville. They got a store in Nashville and that's, you know, a three to five store group, but really there's, there's, it's not just growth for growth sake, especially on, in the smaller groups. The idea is, Hey, go acquire regionally focused, you know, groups of 10 is kind of the is the sweet spot it sounds like for uh, for a for a smaller group to maintain a, a regionality and and like cover the customer base is kind of the idea there. Yes, and this is a concept uh, that well, not just Don Flo, but he's the one that I spoke to most about it, and he has a a group of stores in North Carolina. He's got about thirty stores, and so he covers all the brands. He goes from the mountains to the coast, and um, he has this phrase which is. Local scale is more powerful than national scale. Hmm. Uh, and um, there's no point in having one store in 250 different towns across the country. The customer doesn't get any benefit from having one store near them. 
but the customer will benefit if you have 10 near them, right? You have more opportunities for them to find what they're looking for. Uh, coming back for service is easier. Retaining that customer on their next vehicle purchase or lease is easier. So local scale is more powerful than national scale. So we're definitely encouraging dealers when a store comes up in their market that they're interested in, it's almost like monopoly. You know, when you land on a property, you buy it. Don't pass up on it. And, and we do have clients that are very successful and, and friends of ours that, you know, they'll buy a group of stores here that's underperforming. They'll buy another one up in New England. They'll buy one in the Midwest. And, and they can, um, they can still, still succeed with that. But I feel like long term, if they have two or three stores in a market and Lithia's got 10 or another local dealer's got 10 or 15 or in Don Flo's case, 30, I think the local small dealer is a disadvantage compared to the local big dealer. And the national company doesn't have any strength over the local guy if he just has one or two stores in that market. Mm. Interesting. So, so, so I think that's really key because I was going to ask this question that in all this M&A activity in up 3% and everybody's kind of like, you know, if, if you're paying attention, you're looking at the publics, that's the news that's out there. That's what automotive news or Wall Street Journal or, or you know, the stock market is going to point to and say, this is what's going on. And the question always is, well, what do I do as the local person that, you know, that's three to five? And where do I go? Do I go outside my market or do I stay inside my market? And what you're saying is like, stay inside your market, stay regionally focused, and you have a brand impact because of that. So it's like, it's almost like your M&A strategy is your marketing strategy, and they, they are tied tightly together. Yes. And I'm not saying that's the only strategy that can be successful. For instance, if you have a Toyota store in a single point market, you're going to be successful. You know, <laughs> yeah. you have a, a, a Porsche <laughs> store, a Mercedes store, a BMW store, a Lexus store in a single point market, you're, you're going to be successful. Yeah. If that's the only store you own. But if you've got, are, are you one, seeing? Sorry, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was say if you've got one Chevy and one Ford and one Nissan in a metro market, I don't think you have enough critical mass to attract the best talent. I don't think you have enough critical mass to attract the eyeballs on these tiny little screens that, that my kids are going to be shopping through <laughs> in the future. I think you have to have more local scale to attract these these uh, shoppers in the future. So, Alan, can you give a go ahead. Oh, my bad. Yeah. <laughs> can you give a little insight into what, like, have have you had conversations with OEMs through these uh, acquisitions in what their perception or preference is, or is it just like they're looking at more of a silo on profitability, CSI, and and you know, and retention. And it's just, they, they stay in that silo for, to make, to figure out if they can handle their brand or is there, is there a level of attention that the brand is, that the OEM is recognizing on whether or not you're national or regional? I think, um, well, the, the, all the public companies have framework agreements that dictate when and if they can acquire another of their franchises. So historically, the factories haven't wanted a dealer to have too much control in a market because if that dealer doesn't perform great, their market share suffers. Mm -hmm. So for, for Honda, it used to be, hey, you can't have any contiguous Honda stores. And then they would draw the map so that every store connected to each other. Toyota <laughs> <laughs> um, so was a little more realistic. They said you can't have more than 20% of the stores in a market. So, you know, you couldn't have more than two stores in a market unless there were 10 stores in the market. Um, 
Hyundai is now pushing for dealers to, to have more power in a market. So they want, they don't want, if there are four points in the market, they don't want four dealers. They want. Yeah. They're realizing two. what you're saying, right. And that, you know, that leverage tipping point when the more, the more, you know, consistent experiences and consistent ownership and leverage that the group has, the stronger mm-hmm. the brand is going to be is basically mm-hmm. what I hear you saying. Yeah. And I think that they believe that in the past Hyundai, you know, Hyundai stores used to be cheap. They used to only make $600,000 a year and the multiple was low. And then they got great product. Yeah. And the yeah. margins went from $800 a car to $4,000 a car. So now Hyundai stores are making a lot of money. And um, so now Hyundai wants to take the dealers that they have. And many of the original dealers used to be not that interested in Hyundai compared to their Ford or Toyota stores. Now they want dealers that aren't committed to Hyundai to, to basically get out and sell mm-hmm. your somebody who is going to invest in it to put in the bronze thing who's going to pro- heavily promote it, et cetera. So, you know, that's, that's one of the franchises that we see that wants to have more consolidation within markets. I will tell you, Mercedes also appears to want to have fewer dealers owning more stores. Um, you stop competing against the other Mercedes dealer a little bit. And you focus more on the customer experience. Um, so it's, wow. it's not yeah. clear, right? I mean, it's, everyone's a little bit different. But anyway, this is, this is one recommendation that we're making that now when inventory is, is limited, um, is a good time for, for dealers to be making acquisitions because the profit is going to be so high. Because if they can accumulate stores now so that when the, the supply comes back and the margins go down and dealers have to compete for, for uh, market share again, they'll be better positioned within a market to maintain or take share from smaller dealers. Um, and, and what we're seeing and a couple other trends we're seeing as long as we're on trends is uh, we're seeing many dealers choosing to divest stores now. Um, almost every group of 10 or more stores probably has a couple dogs in there. You know, they've never found the right manager. Maybe it's in an outlying market. They planned on growing there, but they only found one store. And so they, they never have the best talent in that store or they have a facility issue and they don't want to put five or 10 or $15 million into a new facility. But with, so it's just been a laggard for them. And I saw this when I was at Auto Nation. you know, they, they would buy stores and regularly sell stores. It's just part of portfolio management. Uh, but now that stores are all making money and it didn't, it wasn't that way. <laughs> yeah. 2019 right. before really? <laughs> oh, a lot of stores were losers, right? A lot of stores were bleeders. And uh, now that they're all making money, we're seeing larger groups say, Hey, I can probably get some good value for this store now. So I'm going to sell this outlying Chrysler store, Honda store, or whatever, Audi store in some cases, and say, uh, okay, I can sell it for a nice amount of blue sky. I'm going to take that capital, redeploy it into my core market. Uh, And then we're also seeing some dealers that maybe they're near retirement, but they're not quite ready to leave the business. But they're looking at the values for stores that their buddies are getting when they sell, and they're thinking, you know, it'd be nice if I could get some of that value, but not really be done with the business. And so we're starting to see dealers sell a minority ownership stake in their company, or in some cases, a majority ownership stake in their company to other dealer groups or investors. So for instance, our most recent transaction, we advised um, on the sale of John Elway's Crown Toyota 
in Ontario, California, which is one of the top tip top Toyota stores in the country. It's one of the best well performing in the country and usually one top five in terms of sales. Uh, the owners there, that was John Elway, Mitch Pierce, and Paxton Gagne, and, and uh, Dan Grubbs, too. They sold a 90% interest in that dealership to the Jeff Swickard Automotive Group. So they're still in the Toyota family. They still have cash flow from that dealership. They're not retiring. They're going to take that capital from California. They only had one store left in California, and they're going to redeploy it in Denver or other mountain states where they have other dealerships today. Mm, interesting. And, and Jeff Swickard, who, um, you know, has, he's been one of the most aggressive acquirers in recent years. I like this deal for him because when you're acquiring a high performing store, there's always some upside available. And I think they maybe have some ideas there, but there's also a lot of downside. So by keeping Paxton Gagne in the chair as general manager and partner, by keeping Mitch and John on as partners, I think they're going to keep that store wholly intact in terms of the personnel and the mm -hmm. momentum, culture, et cetera. Yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, that's a one price store. So I think that there's a chance that Paxton Gagne, who's been operating that store, can, can educate some of the other Swickard operators about what it's like to be a one price dealer. What are the benefits? Yeah. So it's almost like acquisition for learning. Yeah. It's like interesting. Strategic, yeah. Like DNA, like how do we get that DNA as, you know, how do we intermingle those things so that apparently like leadership is, is saying like, Hey, we want to explore that and how much, how better to explore it than with a really successful case study that is now part of the family. I think that any, any, any group that's acquiring, they're looking for cash flow. But they also really need to be looking for talent because as you expand, you need more talent, right? And so in the automation days, when I first got started, we we're doing stock for stock deals. So all the operators stayed. And many of the best leaders at automation were executives at the dealership groups that automation acquired. And they stayed and they had a, a bigger opportunity and they grew and, and, and they were really the key to keeping that company together. So you know, it's interesting. We don't talk a lot about that in automotive or in the, the, the retail side of the business. But the reality is, is that in the technology side of the business, this happens all the time mm -hmm. in, in any technology is that is that a good amount of the acquisition is not just for the IP or the technology or even the or even the profit that it's actually the leadership or the founders or anything like that, that that they're acquiring that brain space or the leadership capacity just as much as they are acquiring the, the, the actual company. And, you know, so you saying like, oh, that's actually happening in automotive too. Instead of going and just sniping those people, it's like, hey, look, we know we need to grow. We want to grow in this region. Let's go find the places with the best talent because we might groom that into additional resources for, for our company. Um, I, I think that's a really, especially when all we've been talking about in the industry is hard to find talent, need to hire, hiring is hard, all that type of stuff. Techni finding technicians, it's like, you want to go find some more technicians? Buy some stores, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, it's a win. I like to view it as a win-win-win. I mean, Toyota um, has loved, I think, their affiliation with John Elway and Mitch Pierce and Paxton Gagne, and that's continuing. And um, and Jeff also has the support of, of Toyota and a number of other factories. He's, for instance, chairman of the Mercedes-Benz Dealer Advisory Board. 
he's going to be, I mean, he bought a whole bunch of cash flow with this deal, but he also has now access to some of the most successful and best known auto retailers, some of the most progressive. And as he evolves his company, you know, I'm, I'm not sure Jeff is going to do this, but I would assume he's going to be talking to Paxton about, could we deploy one price at our other stores? Would that make sense for, would we win or would we lose? What would the transition be like? Cause it's not easy um, to do mm-hmm. that. So that's, that's an example where a group decided to sell a majority ownership stake in their company, but not the whole thing. They really didn't want to exit from their relationship with Toyota. They didn't really want to exit from the, the, the profitability of that business, but they did want to get a lot of liquidity out of liquidity out of it for investment in other areas where they're, there's a little stronger. Another trend we're seeing is where a dealer is not interested in exiting. They still want to do what they've been doing, but they do want to take advantage of the current high values for dealerships today. And they're willing to sell a minority stake in the company. That's something that's new where a dealer could come in and say, okay, I'm going to buy up to 49% of the, of the value of your company, you are going to, you, Mr. Dealer are going to stay in the chair. You're going to make all the decisions about hiring, firing, inventory, advertising. You're going to deal with the factory. Uh, I'm really here for the cash flow, and I don't have the ability to call you and say, I want you to change the pay plans or advertise more or less. I sit here and I'm a passive investor. At some point down the road, I'll want to sell but I can't force you, Mr. Dealer, to sell your shares. I might sell my stock, or maybe in five years, you decide you're ready to fully retire and we all exit together. That's another new um, mm-hmm. opportunity to see for dealers. Because you know a lot of people, they're having fun in the business right now, right? I mean, it's right. all-time high profits. Um, they've never had this much fun. But at the same time, you know, what happens with the agency model? What happens with EVs? What happens uh, if they get sick? What happens if the competitors get better? There are all kinds of risks that exist that it's not likely to get better in our industry. If anything, there's more downside risk in terms of profitability. So a lot of these folks are saying, okay, well, if I could sell 40% of my company, let's say the company's worth $100 million, I get $40 million in cash. I can use that to invest in real estate, in the stock market, whatever I want to do. I can start to give funds to my heirs if they want to start their careers outside the car business. Provides a lot of liquidity for them. And they still own 60% of a business that's making three times as much as it was before. So their, their cash flow is not really going to be hurting compared to pre-pandemic times. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like interesting. It's not like they have to cut their own grass or anything that they'll be on hard times. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, uh, it's fun for us right now to have these opportunities to represent dealers where, hey, if you want to you wanna ring the bell right now, I mean, we're seeing these record-setting prices. Uh, I mentioned, you know, this crown deal it was the second most ever paid for a single franchise dealership. The highest uh, Group 1 paid just earlier this year for Charles Mon Toyota. That was over $200 million in Blue Sky for one store. So when I raise this glass... You think this is a Guinness or a cup of coffee, but I'm going to be celebrating our success this week and, and toasting John and Mitch and Paxton and, and Jeff Swickard on their success. Cause I think that we're going to continue to see some record setting prices for dealerships for the rest of this year in, in different brands. Mm. There you go. Wow. I love that's, it. That's I, the I, first I toast like, that's ever happened I'm on the just, podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm toasting. Whatever it is, I'm toasting because it's fun and exciting. You know, I love that, that 
like we're having fun in this industry. There, there, there's M and A activity, but people are wanting to stay in. It's not, it's not just like you. You'd think it's just like a cash grab, but no, it's like it's it's an interesting movement of funds to make sure you, people can stay in the industry. They can keep having fun, and and there's a there's a there's a look towards solving the customer experience with the M and A activity. There's a regional focus. There's a care for the customer, and it's not just millions of dollars flying around for millions of dollars' sake. It's millions of dollars that has a ton of intentionality uh, with it. And I think the industry is raising a glass. Well, I think we're going to do that too when when we hang out with you at a SoduCon. We're really excited to kind of bring the insights that you that you bring there. Uh, we'll raise a glass with you. We'll throw a party. Uh, with with the industry, the only the way that we only can at a Sodu. Uh, but uh, Alan, thank you so much for joining us, for bringing us your insights. It's it's been it's just been a learning experience for me the last few minutes. So thank you. Well, it's my pleasure, and I look forward to toasting you in person, uh, not too far from now. Alan is such a depth of knowledge. You can tell he's in the data every single day. It's like you put a quarter in. Right. And out comes the most relevant, pertinent information about yeah. MA. Insights <clears throat> from experience, right, Sarilla? Substance that can only come from experience. That's actually true. <laughs> and you know, MA's kind of got that vibe about it, right? It's like blue suits, right? But the truth is, it's less about, I mean, it's about the numbers, let's be honest. But really, MA is so emotionally tied um, to the actual client, right? You have a client, and he represents mostly sell side. So, this is a lot of decision-making of like, should we sell the family business that has been in the family for generations and generations? So um, it doesn't well, I, surprise I, me. Real quick, I also re- I really appreciate the fact that he did tie M&A activity to the customer experience. Absolutely. And how, you know, mm-hmm. regionality and understanding how you can serve a customer as you acquire dealerships or as your dealership is getting acquired and how that actually might be better for the consumer if you operate correctly uh, in a regional e- ecosystem, I think is it's a, it's a key to understand understanding any type of transaction technology industry partner anything right now is tying it back to the customer experience i'm continually blown away at just how vast this industry is that we work inside of like we talk a lot about community but like I, i think of just how versatile and vast it is in the sense that like i'm a tech marketing guy there is an infinite wormhole that i can go down and only see the industry through that lens then all of a sudden, like, I'm not even thinking about m and I'm not thinking about it at all. Mm-hmm. And yet there's just as vast and infinite a wormhole to go down in that direction. So true. And it just makes me, it, it just increases my appreciation and respect for um, dealers, operators, because they're getting hit with all of they have the to things. Be, they have to handle everything. Like everything. And so just so much respect for the dealer community. Loved this conversation with Alan Hegg. We hope you did too. On behalf of Paul Daly, Kyle Mounts here and myself, Michael Cirillo, thanks for joining us on Auto Collabs. Sign up for our free and fun to read daily email for a free shot of relevant news in automotive, retail, media, and pop culture. You can get it now at asotu.com. That's A-S-O-T-U.com. If you love this podcast, please leave us a review and share it with a friend. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Welcome, Welcome to, to Auto Collapse. <laughs> Why are we recording?
recording yet? Are we rolling yet? <laughs>